spread outside of Jerusalem uh, into, as Jesus said in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the, the gospel would be shared to Jerusalem and then to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Luke has been giving us that picture of it being spread to Samaria first as he goes there and shares the gospel and Simon the magician tries to, to buy the power that the disciples are displaying. And then he shares it with an Ethiopian eunuch, which we talked about last week. Uh, and again, Ethiopia, that idea is, is Ethiopia uh, is the edge of the earth to the people of, of New Testament times. And so he gives us this picture that says the gospel is being spread to Judea and Samaria. He's literally going to Samaria and then to the edge of the earth, to the Ethiopian. And last week we talked about ways that God works. He, he uses three specific ways we talked about last week in the story of Philip that, that an angel instructs Philip that, that he is to go to the Gaza road um, then when he gets there, the spirit prompts him to go up to the chariot and to visit with the Ethiopian uh, that's reading part of Isaiah in the chariot. And then at the end of the story, when, when the whole story is done and, and Philip has shared with the Ethiopian, it, it says that God physically just transports Philip. Like he physically moves him from right there with the Ethiopian at the baptism of the Ethiopian into another city. God works in, in lots of different ways to orchestrate what he is doing to accomplish the spread of his gospel in the midst of this. Last week we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch having many titles. There's many descriptors of who he is in Acts chapter 8, but none of those, none of those titles, none of those things compare to these two, sinner in need of redemption and then child of the king. Both of those we see there in Acts chapter 8. Philip, our example in the midst of that, was faithful. Faithful in the small things. Starting, starting his conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch by saying, do you understand what you're reading? And then, just walking him through. Maybe even right there from Isaiah 53 into chapter 54 and 55 and 56. Showing him showing him the suffering servant who was Jesus, showing him the covenant that was being made with, with his people, with God's people, and then showing him that there is hope for everyone, including the eunuch. And then Philip goes on to continue to preach as he moves up the coast. Today, we're moving on to the next character. And this week, I, I had an interesting thought as I was preparing this and planning and 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 getting ready for this morning, I sometimes periodically listen to different podcasts about lots of different things. One of the podcasts that I listen to once in a while is an American history podcast. And the, the series that I listened to this week was on, on Billy the Kid. And Billy the Kid, if you know much about his story, and I don't know much outside of the podcast things that I listened to and read about this week. But Billy the Kid is... is only lived to be about 21 or 22, but he had, he had a vastly different life, two different lives in those 21 or 22 years. He was, he was born Henry McCarty to a mother and a father. His father later was out of the picture. His mother remarried, but 
She cared deeply about Henry and his brother. Um, she did all that she could to try to protect him and, and to raise them in ways that they wouldn't get caught up in, in the bad side of the story or the, the bad side of the tracks. And so she would protect him. In fact, at one point, even kept them and, and moved out of town. She owned a, a laundry service in town, but she moved them out of town so that she could keep them away from the influences that would, that would destroy them. Uh, and, and he was well-read. He was well-educated. Uh, he was super polite, they say. Uh, the child, Billy the Kid, uh, was, was a good kid by all accounts but then his mother passed away and he began to to get connected with some friends that were not such good influences on him and by lots of different happenstances ends up becoming an outlaw changes his name becomes begins to call himself William H Bonnie which then becomes Billy the kid because of his youthful appearance and his young age he becomes an outlaw he he becomes a gunslinger and, as you know, is, is finally killed as he's running from the law at the age of 21 or 22. Two different stories. Henry McCarty, good kid, well-read, tried to be protected from the, from the bad stuff early on. William H. Bonney, gunslinger, outlaw, most notor- one of the most notorious names that we know from the Old West. Two completely different stories wound up in one man, one boy, 20 years old. That's the same story that we're looking at this week in the story of Saul. Two completely, two completely different stories all wound up in one man. And in fact, maybe even more than two stories. He, he, well, we'll just get there. There's more than just two sides to the story of Paul. Saul, Saul is the guy we're looking at. Luke is a, is a masterful director as he writes the book of Acts. He gives us this, this small picture of, of Saul early on, that Saul is, is watching over the coats as Stephen uh, is, is stoned and killed at the end of, of chapter 7, I believe, He's he's standing there. We just get this little glimpse of who he is, that he may be even approved of the execution, Luke tells us. And then Luke, if you remember back at the beginning of chapter 8, Luke then tells us that that Saul was ravaging the church, that he was entering the houses and going house to house and dragging off men and women and throwing them in prison. And so we we have this little glimpse of of Saul just standing watching the, the killing of Philip. And then we hear just this quick report of of what he might be doing, but we don't really have a good picture of him. And now we get to Acts chapter 9, and we already have this disposition of being opposed to this guy named Saul. We don't really know much about him. We haven't heard anything about who he is or what his life is, but we know that he was there when Stephen was stoned. We know that, that he was ravaging the church. And so we have this feeling. Here he is. This, is. this is the bad guy. This is the evil part of the story. And we see him and we begin to already detest him. Let me give you a little background on who this Saul was. Saul was born 
in Tarsus. Which means, if you've been following as we've walked through, Saul is a Hellenist. Saul is a Jewish believer, not a believer, a Jewish person who was born and grew up outside of Jerusalem. And if you remember when we talked about the, 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 the calling of, of the deacons, of, of Stephen and Philip, back in chapter 5, I believe, uh, the reason that we had to, to call these deacons, and one of the reasons why we had to bring these people into the church to, to take care of the widows in need was because there was this, there was this battle kind of going on between the, the Jewish the Jewish Christians, and the Hellenist Christians, that, that there was this, this prejudice kind of against those who were not originally from Jerusalem. And Saul is one of those Hellenists. He's grown up outside of Jerusalem. He probably speaks fluent Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, speaks all these languages where some of those, some of those disciples who only grew up in Jerusalem would have probably understood Greek, maybe even had a, a bit of Greek that they would have spoke, but they would have almost all spoken Aramaic. And so there was a bit of, of prejudice even against those who grew up outside of Jerusalem. Saul was super smart. We, we know that as we read what he shared, but, but he also is, 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 has lots of potential. In fact, even though he's a Hellenist, even though he's, he's born in Tarsus and, and, and early on raised outside of Jerusalem, He's brought into Jerusalem and is, and is put in a, in a small group, a, a, a rabbinical group, with the rabbi Gamaliel, who we saw earlier. Paul several times references that training that he would have received from Gamaliel. That he was brought into one of the elite groups, one of the best groups there in Jerusalem. And so even though he was a Hellenist, he was brought in and, and was, was probably, his family was probably well off so that he might be able to travel and, and be brought into this small group of men who were being trained. And he continues on in his training, and then we come to Acts chapter 9, chapters 8 and 9. And we get this picture, this dual picture of who is this man named Saul. The first picture that we get of Saul, this first idea of who Saul is, is that Saul is the worst of the worst. He is the terrorist of the church. And there's no denying that. Let's look. I want you to look in, in, back in chapter 8 here a little bit, and then at the beginning of chapter 9. I want you to look at the words that Luke uses when he talks about Saul. So back uh, at the end of chapter 8 here, or at the beginning of chapter 8, when, he, when Stephen is, is stoned, in chapter 8, verse 1, Luke says, Saul approved of his execution. Didn't just, wasn't just there, wasn't just a part of it. He, he approved of it, Luke says. Verse 3 of chapter 8, just a couple of verses later, says that Saul is ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. The words that Luke is using are vivid words. He's not just saying Saul was in charge of, of going around and, and arresting those who were believers, who were trusting in Jesus. He says he's ravaging the church. In chapter 9, we're, we're going to read it in just a second, but right here in chapter 9 it says, 
Paul, but, but Saul, starting in verse one, but Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. See what Luke is doing? He's, 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 he's not saying Saul was this guy that was hurting the church. He says, Saul, he is the worst of the worst. He's ravaging the church. He's breathing threats, murderous threats against them. He's hauling them off. He's doing everything he can. He's doing everything he can to put an end to the early church. Everything that he can to put an end to the early church. In fact, Saul says it himself later on in, in Acts chapter 2. This conversion story that we're looking at is in, is in several different passages in the book of Acts. Uh, there's two times in, Psalm 20, or in Acts 22 and in Acts 26 where Saul himself, Paul himself, tells this same story. And in one of the times in, in chapter 22 as he's telling this story, this is what Paul says. He says, I persecuted this way to death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then I received letters to the brothers I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Even Paul himself says that I was binding and delivering men and women into prison. In fact, this whole story starts with with Saul, not, he's, not just, he's not just okay with being in Jerusalem and, and arresting the Christians that are in Jerusalem. Now, now they've begun to scatter because of his persecution, and so now he's begun to chase them down. But not even, not even in his own little area. Damascus is outside of the jurisdiction of the church. And so he has to go and get special letters so that he can chase down this group of Christians that he's heard are in Damascus. He has to get a special letter, special instruction, special approval from the church leaders so that he can go there knowing that while he doesn't have authority there, per se, from the church, he at least will have these letters that will be respected by the synagogue leaders and they won't say anything to him as he begins to go to the synagogues, find the Jewish people that believe in Jesus and arrest them and bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem. He's going so far that he just wants to stamp it out wherever he goes. Saul is a ruthless terrorist. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy says it himself. He says it this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul himself says, I was the worst of the worst. The worst of the worst. But Saul also was more than just the worst of the worst. He also, he also was the best of the best. He also was, was fast rising in, in obeying the law. He, his, his whole life was about knowing the law, following the law, obeying the law, and doing exactly what the law of Moses had asked him to do. That's how he had risen up. In, in this group, that's how he got the job that he, that he was given was that he was the best of the best 
at doing the things the Pharisees did. He was an up-and-comer. He was one who, who was always going above and beyond. We know that because he tells us that himself. Again, back in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says it this way. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I was zealous. I was excelling among those who were my own age. I was passionate about following the law to the letter. He says it again in Philippians chapter three. This is a passage you probably remember, but he explains it well here, his passion for being a strong Jew. Chapter three of Philippians, he says, if anyone else thinks that he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of a Hebrew, of Hebrews. As to the law, Paul says, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul, when he reflects back on his life before he met Jesus, says, I was the best of the best at following the law. I was as good as you can get. There's two pictures we have of Saul. The worst of the worst, the guy that's breathing fire and banging down doors and arresting Christians, overseeing, overseeing stoning deaths. And then this other guy, the best churchgoer, the best follower that he could be, obeying all of the rules. In fact, it's his passion it's his passion for being the best rule follower, the best law follower. It's his passion for being the best law follower that makes him that makes him the one who goes after all of the Christians. He doesn't switch in the midst of that. As he is following the rules, as he's looking at the laws, he's trying to do everything he can to, to defend God's honor and God's glory. He begins to see this group of people who are, who are saying that there is... There is another man who claimed he was God, who, who raised from the dead, and Paul, Saul, Saul can't handle that. He can't handle that these people would try to defame his God, and so as, as, as he rises up, he's doing it so that he can defend God's honor. Even as he becomes the worst of the worst, it's because he's trying to be the best of the best. He's trying to be as good as he can, even in the moments when he's as bad as he is. So who was this man, Saul? Was he a murderous, vicious, early church killer? Yes. Was he a committed and, dis and disciplined law follower and church leader? Yes. He was both of those things, and as we're about to see, he was so much more. Let's read together here in Acts chapter 9 as we read about what happened to this man named Saul. Starting in verse 1. 
But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a a heaven flashed around him, a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul, from the ground, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. What happened? What happened to Saul? What happened to this man who was the best of the best and the worst of the worst? What happened to him here on this road to Damascus? Again, we have a couple of different pictures of this story. It's told here in chapter 9. Luke just gives it to us here in chapter 9. But later, Paul himself talks about it in Acts 22 and in Acts 26 as he shares it and, and also shares about it a couple of different times in his writings. What happened to Saul on the road? He was heading to Damascus. We've already talked about that, that he had gotten instructions. He'd gotten a letter from the priest so that he might go and bring all of those who were in the way. This was the first time that the early church is called the people of the way. He's headed out to bring these people in. And it says, a light from heaven shone around him. A light from heaven shone around him. We have a picture of what that means, and yet, and yet again, the, the actual language gives such a broader picture of it. The, the light that shone from heaven, that, that Greek word, I'm told, or I've read this week, is actually the word for a lightning strike. That there's a, a lightning strike at noon, it tells us in one of the other passages where, where, where Paul talks about this same story. He says at high noon, they were on the road, and a lightning strike comes from heaven, and is not just a flash of lightning, but is lightning intense for a period of time. It's not just a flash and over, but it's, it's like a lightning strike, but it lasts on and on while Paul is, or while Saul, sorry, Saul is on the road. And he hears a voice out of heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul calls his name twice. Early on, we get this picture that Jesus not just knows who this guy is, but Jesus already has a personal connection. He has a personal call to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He has a personal approach to Saul. We also see as he begins to talk, as Jesus begins to talk to Saul, that Saul not only has a personal connection and approach, that God not only has a personal connection 
to Saul, but also to the church. Because, because he says later, Jesus says in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When you persecute the church, when you persecute believers, when you persecute people who are of the way, you are persecuting me. And so Jesus here begins with a personal connection to Saul, Saul, Saul. Two times he says his name. But also says, I have a personal connection to the church, to believers. Saul, Saul, why, why, let me ask this question. Why does this conversion story come up three times in the book of Acts. There's only 29 chapters. There's lots and lots of stories. There's lots of years that happen in the book of Acts. Why would we have this story three different times? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that Saul is struck by light, looks up, and hears a voice from heaven, and it's Jesus saying, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting? Why does Paul reference back to this several times? both in the book of Acts and in his own teachings. It's because, it's because his claim of apostleship rests on the fact that he actually had a personal encounter with Jesus. Saul is not like, or Paul is not like the other disciples. The other disciples who, who were there with Jesus, they had the training that Jesus had, they were there at the cross when Jesus was, was crucified, they were there when Jesus was resurrected, they had the, these moments where Jesus taught him even post-resurrection, that, that they, the disciples that were there when Jesus was ascended into heaven, Paul wasn't a part of that, Saul wasn't a part of that. And so Saul has to reference this meeting with Jesus over and over and over to point back to say he too is an apostle. He's the only apostle who did not have a personal connection with Jesus while he was alive. But does, in fact, have a personal connection with Jesus. We see it here in chapter 9. And so, a voice comes to him while he's there. The other men that are with him, it doesn't say it in this passage, but in one of the other passages, it says that, that the other men who are with him see the light, they hear a, a noise or they hear some kind of voice, but they don't understand what it says. This voice is to Saul and Saul specifically. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, he responds, who are you? Lord. You get a picture, you get this feeling already that Saul knows. He knows the answer. Who are you, Lord? He doesn't, he, 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 he doesn't belittle the one who is speaking to him. He already knows. He already knows who this is. And in fact, later when, in chapter 26, when, when Paul is talking about this experience, he's talking to King Agrippa. And, and he says at that point, Paul himself says, um, when he's reciting this, he says the question that he hears as he's laying on the ground is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads, it says in chapter 26. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That, that passage, I don't know if you are familiar, if you're familiar with what goads are, but goads are spikes that they would have on the, 
the base of a, of a horse-drawn carriage or a horse-drawn wagon so that when, when unruly horses or, or mules, probably even more than horses, when the mules would be pulling the wagon and being told to go where they were supposed to go and they had decided that they didn't want to do what they were being told to do, they would begin to, to kick backwards. And as they would kick backwards, they would oftentimes break up the wagon because of their strong kicks. And so, so they began to put spikes on the wagons so that when the horses or mules would kick back, their legs would hit those spikes and instead of kicking back and destroying the wagons, they, they would be spurred on so that they would do what they were supposed to do, to go where they were told to go, to do what they were called to do. And so as Paul tells the story, he says that Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. He says, you already know what's happening here. You already know who I am. Your conscience has already began to stir in you. He also, Paul also talks later in the book of Acts, he talks about being there when Stephen was stoned to death and knowing that the blood of Stephen was on his hands. He remembers that time in Jerusalem. And all of those things are beginning to stir in Saul. And Saul begins to... I think, to know. Maybe all of this that, that's being said about Jesus is, in fact, true. And maybe that's even what spurs him on so that he becomes all the more committed to destroying it. It's because he's starting to have these, these spurrings inside of him, these stirrings inside of him. Jesus is saying to him, Saul, you know what's right, and now it's time for you to do what you're being called and told to do. Who are you, Lord? Saul says back to Jesus. Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then here in this passage, he gives instructions. Rise, enter into the city, you'll be told what to do. But in a different passage, again in Acts chapter 22, when Paul is telling the story himself, he inserts here a, a question that he asks in this moment. Probably for the first of what might be thousands of times, Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, and Paul responds, according to Acts chapter 22, by saying, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? And Jesus responds with these same instructions, rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Saul, the worst of the worst. Saul, the best of the best, has this encounter with Jesus which confirms everything that's been stirring inside of him. And in that moment, he knows that there's nothing else for him to do. There's no other way for him to fight. There's no other way for him to go on. His only response is, Lord, what shall I do? 
what shall I do? There's nowhere else for me to go. And Jesus gives him the instructions. Go, rise, go into the city, and then you'll be told what to do. As you continue to see those next couple of verses, you see that the men pick him up. They, they lead him, his eyes open, he still can't see anything. And so, you can imagine the picture of what the early church, the early Christians that are now in Damascus, as they see this man that they have been fearing, knowing he was on his way, this man who has been ravaging the church, who's been breathing murderous threats, the one that they have heard rumor that he's on his way, and so now they're scared, but now they see him coming into Damascus, being led because he's completely helpless. He can't see, he can't, he has to be led by these men into the city. He's no longer the worst of the worst, nor is he the best of the best. But he's a man who has had an encounter with Jesus. For three days, it says in verse nine, he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Think about those three days for Saul. He's had this experience with Jesus, but it hasn't been confirmed yet. So you look on at chapter nine, what we'll look at next week is the confirmation of what God does through Ananias to confirm his conversion. At this moment, at this moment, all Saul has is that experience on the road with Jesus and a, and a willing response that says, Lord, what will you have me do? I can only imagine that in those three days that Saul spent time, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, couldn't see anything. I think he just spent those times repenting, realizing the depth of his sin. The psalm that we read today, Psalm 25, I think those were some of the words probably that, that Saul remembered and reviewed in his mind. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let me be humiliated by trusting in the wrong deity. I have looked to the wrong place for my salvation and now, and now I look to you. I see that you are the only place for me to go. Those are some of the thoughts I think that Saul had in those three days. Some of the same thoughts that I think we have as we gather together for communion. There's nowhere else for us to go. It's only, it's only to Jesus. There's no other God for us to trust in. There's no other place for us to hope in. And it doesn't matter this morning how you come into this room. Whether you are the worst of the worst and you come in and you think, I don't know how I can come here. All of these things that I have done, all of the ways that I have been, I am the foremost of all sinners, is what Paul said. Or you may come in here today just the opposite and say, I am the best of the best. I have never done anything really wrong. I've always been here. I've always obeyed the rules. I've always done everything that I could. I've risen up the ranks. I am the best of the best. Whatever side of that coin you come in, your only hope this morning is the same as Saul. 
Our only hope this morning is Jesus. That his death and resurrection is the way for us. Our only hope this morning to not be put to shame is to trust in the body and blood of Jesus. The worship team is going to come this morning and help us to worship. Some elders are going to come and lead us as we share in communion this morning. There's an invitation on the screen. It's also in your bulletin. If you can live under that invitation, we want you to celebrate in communion with us. And the hope that we have, the only hope that we have through the body and blood of Jesus. I hope that you'll celebrate with us. In just a moment, the worship team will lead us, the elders will instruct us, and we'll share in communion together.
represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for the worst of the worst. Take and eat and be grateful. This represents the blood, which was shed for the best of the best. Take and drink and be grateful for Jesus' sacrifice. Benediction this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 13. And now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming.